Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your concerns, your questions, your observations, your inquiries, and ultimately your comments about tennis and other things. About 48 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab. I also tweeted on my Twitter account at Gil underscore Gross. Tons of comments, really good stuff. I pulled 18 of them. Hopefully I get to all of them. A lot of good stuff as we approach week two of Roland Garros 2021. I'm recording this on Saturday night. So the third round just ended and the final match of that third round was Roger Federer's win over Dominic Kepfer. It was a four-set victory. There were three tie breaks in the match. The fourth set was won by Roger Federer 7-5. And the first comment is about that. It comes from Wildlife. Were you surprised by Federer's fitness level? So this was a long match. This was about three and a half hours. And Federer is able to pull through. So that in itself is an impressive feat, but I want to uh, to challenge it a little bit. The answer is actually no. Not it wasn't really. That was not my takeaway. Let's just say that my takeaway from that match was not, wow, Roger Federer can can go a really long time at a high level of physical intensity, because he didn't go three and a half hours. He didn't play three at three and a half hours at his full intensity. He he simply didn't. Uh, his feet were at times a lot slower than they would be at 100%. I thought at times he looked tired, and I th I think it's a safe bet to say he was tired. The key in this match was that he never let his level dip below a certain point despite physically not feeling 100%, and, and he managed his energy. And what that means is you don't go 100% all the time for every point. You pick your spots. You make sure to hold serve. You manage your return games. And you pounce when the moment is right. And, you know, Roger Federer did that in the latter stages of the fourth set to get the break and ultimately the 7-5 win. He did that in the third set to really peak and play an excellent tie break after playing a, a really a really bad tie break in the second set. So Federer had his moments where he raised his intensity and, you know, gave, uh, gave the a hundred percent, you know, reached, reached the movement that he needs to be at. But I wasn't impressed with Federer's fitness level. I was impressed with his focus, his compete, his grit, that despite being tired and despite not really having his best legs under him, he never got, you know, he never, really faltered to a point to gift Kepfer massive leads. And, you know, this was a very dangerous match for him. It felt a lot like some of his more surprising previous losses at slams. Uh, the first thing was that it was at night in, in very cool yet humid conditions, similar conditions that he lost to John Millman in at the 2018 U.S. Open. He lost to Grigor Dimitrov at the 2019 U.S. Open. Also in hot, humid conditions. And Stefano Tsitsipas in 2019 at the Australian Open uh, was played in similar conditions. And this looked very similar. It was Federer being kind of dragged into the trenches. The conditions were slow, making it very difficult. Inspired opponent. But uh, he he kept his focus and his grit and his compete were, were impressive to me. And he also got some help from Dominic Kepfer, certainly. Uh, let's stay on this topic. The next one is from David. 
David says, how do you explain Fed's huge amount of unforced errors? Most of them were certainly not risky shots. Was it physical, mental, conditions? These kinds of figures usually suggest back or knee issues. I thought for the most part, it was the feet. It was that he could not maintain uh, the the intensity that he needs in his feet to really play flawless, you know, errorless tennis. I think it was two things actually. Um, but if you look at the second set tie break, look at the first two mini breaks. He tried to run around forehands and he did not get to the right spot. He did not get all the way around. Um, so I thought that it, it was mostly fatigue and just movement issues. But then when, when it counted, when he really needed his movement to be good, he could get there. But he was managing his energy, which is which is natural. You know, he, he knew that he's not going to be at 100% fitness right now. Um, and let me get to the second reason, and then I'll, I'll tack something on here that I think everyone should know heading into the Matteo Berrettini match. Everyone should know what I'm about to say. But uh, the second thing are the conditions. Federer could not do anything on his backhand. He just, he couldn't do damage. It, the conditions were too heavy. It is a power problem, okay? And it's not about the fact that he has a one-handed backhand because uh, Stan Wawrinka would be advantaged in those conditions. Dominic Team would be advantaged in those conditions. Roger Federer has a bit of a power deficiency, not not a not a really big one, just a, a very small one, a tad on the backhand side, which is not a problem on the quicker surfaces. He makes up for it with how early he takes it, his variety, obviously his precision, mostly how early he takes the ball. But uh, on clay, uh, it helps to have that extra bit of power that Roger does not have. He does not have the ability to hit through the heavy conditions on his backhand. So he just had to trade it. He really couldn't do much damage with it. Um, forced very few errors. Uh, didn't put that much pressure on the backhand side. Uh, hit certainly very few winners on that side. So that's difficult for him. And then on the forehand, he just needs to hit it a little bit better than he would normally need to hit it. But I, I think it was more a problem on the backhand. The backhand just wasn't damaging. And the serve. How about the serve? Wow. A, a massive difference between the Marin Cilic match, which he played in the daytime, versus this match. You look at the numbers this match. And I think Federer ended with six aces. But uh, if you look at the Chilich match, he hit 117 first serves. 16 aces in 117 first serves. When Federer served his 117th first serve in this Dominic Kepfer match, he had four aces. A total of four versus 16. That's A lot of that is just cooler temperature at night. A lot of that. And the humidity, which slows things down. Also, I mean, uh, an opponent who stands a little bit further back on return, maybe a little bit more agile, but shorter than Chilich, doesn't have the, the long uh, wingspan. So serve speed was a little bit down in the third set. What was it in the fourth? Let me take a quick look at that. Um, so, so that also plays a factor, and that goes back to the fact that he was tired. He wasn't some kind of physical animal in this match in an unexpected way. He was tired. Uh Yikes. Oh my God. His average first serve speed in set four was 99 miles per hour, guys. He was exhausted. 99. So so let me paint this picture here. And I'm doing this live because when I looked at the set four 
average serve speed, I had no idea it was going to be that low. But let me paint you the picture here. Marin Cilic match, I know he averaged 112. Set one in the in the Kepfer match, 112. Set two, 112. Here's where you're going to see the dip. He did get tired. Set three, 107. Set four, 99. It was not some kind of physical dynamo performance by Federer. It, he did get tired. He just managed it. Um, the thing that I wanted to make sure that I said before I move on from this match, Federer hinted at the possibility that he might withdraw. He just, he left it open. Um, I don't have the exact quote here, but I just think you should know that. That he said, basically, we need to evaluate, we need to see if there's, if it's worth continuing to play, if there's any risk in continuing to play, or if this is a good stopping point, is basically what he said. He didn't say, I'm thinking about withdrawing, I might withdraw, I should withdraw. All he did was was hint at the idea that it is uh, within the realm of possibility. Because he just doesn't know how he's going to recover from this. It was three and a half hours, nonetheless. Uh, regardless of how he, he managed his energy. Okay, let's try to get through these quicker now. This one from Jimbo. Tennis, Iga has looked dominant like Nadal. Do you think she's starting to get that king of clay aura where her opponent feels defeated before they walk onto the court? She's bageling and breadsticking her opponents at such an incredible rate. And after obviously going all the way through the tournament last year, everyone is very well aware of what she's doing. I would have to say yes. You know, it's getting to a point where she is humiliating so many players that you step onto the court with her and not only are you saying, well, I hope I win, but you're saying, well, I hope I don't look like everyone else who's played Iga and just hasn't been competitive on the surface on clay. Uh, she really is. And uh, in play style as well, especially when you look at the forehand, it is like a female version of Nadal. And that is not an accident. That is not a coincidence. So... Next one from Siddharth. Um, I asked about Massetti's game in the previous mailbag, and you didn't take the question, but mark my word, this guy's going a long way. On clay, certainly. I, I want to um, just kind of reserve comment on Massetti, to be honest. I don't want to go go too in-depth, but um, he is very, very good. First of all, he's an incredible shot-making talent off of both wings, and he's got a bravado. He's got just unbelievable skills, acceleration off both wings, firepower, uh, court craft, all of those things. He's just got some holes. Uh, physicality, where obviously he needs to get more physical. He's still a teenager. And um, the ability to absorb pace, the ability to return serve at a high level. His court position is generally... Uh, and again, I, I don't mind... I don't mind deep court position, but he might be a little bit extreme for his physicality, and uh, that might hurt him. And also the serve, similar to Yannick Sinner, he has development to go with the serve. Yeah, he's, he's bright, bright future. I want to see how his results translate because it, it seems like right now his game is really built for clay, and 
I, I'd like to see how his skills on other surfaces develop. And I also want to see him play Novak Djokovic. I, I want that information because uh, he does have some good wins, and I'm going to read them off in a, in a moment um, because he does have some good wins. Let's see. Uh, Diego Schwartzman, Grigor Dimitrov in Acapulco. He beat FAA on clay. He beat Hubert Hercoc on clay. He beat David Gaffan in the first round here. He just beat Marco Cecchinato in a good five-set contest. So he's beaten some good players, but um, none of them represent his uh, his real kryptonite, which is the big hitter and the big server. And that's where Musetti has struggled in his young career. And uh, let's just see if he can, let's see if, if he can get Djokovic's first serve one per win percentage under 75%. Let's see if he can do that. Let's see how he looks. From Sandeep, only answer this if Medvedev beats Opelka today. How much of a chance does he have of reaching the semifinal or the final? So, you know, one of my big things all tournament long was don't be surprised if Medvedev wins some matches. And I'm not going to do more harping on on why. But no, I, I still see. I don't think there's much of a chance that he goes that deep at the same time. I just think people really overreacted. I was very early on the bandwagon of Medvedev is not going to be great on clay. I mean, I was even in 2019 when he had results, I I didn't think that he was ever going to be something on clay. And then everyone just totally overreacted by a string of tournaments where he had bad results. He's first of all a volatile competitor, an inconsistent guy in general. He goes on bad streaks, uh, but also if you were watching the matches, you just know that he wasn't quite competing. So the question remained, you know, if he competes, he still has a lot of skills to be a, a player who's going to win matches. Uh, but I think that Medvedev is probably somewhere between like the the sixth and the twelfth best player in the world on clay, somewhere in that range. Right now, he's number two in the rankings. He's a top three player in the world on the quicker surfaces. You know, him and Djokovic are probably one and two on indoor hard courts. So Medvedev gets worse on clay, but he doesn't become a guy who's just going to lose in the first round every tournament. And I've just been flabbergasted by kind of the, the doubt thrown his way when he's playing a match like Tommy Paul and people are are acting like it's a 50-50 match. Uh, again, the days of Boris Becker and Pete Sampras are over. You're never going to see a guy who's the second best player on on in the rankings who can't win a match on clay. It's just not going to happen ever again unless things change. Or I'm going to say in the current era, it's not going to happen. Uh, at the same time, he shouldn't beat Tsitsipas or Zverev. On, on this surface. He he shouldn't. He um offense still comes hard. If you watch the first set, the first set against uh Tommy Paul, Paul played a great first set, and I think I'll get to him a little bit more later. Uh when Medvedev was a little bit pressing and desperate for offense, you saw him struggle a little bit and make errors. Because the offense still doesn't come easy. He is not a player who is going to be the full package on clay which on some surfaces, he, he's the full package. He can dictate. He can punish you. He can trade from neutral, and he can defend. On clay, he can trade, and he can defend. He's not going to be a punishing offensive player. So that diminishes him. I don't think he can reach the semifinal or the final, but I do favor him against uh, Christian Garin. I do. I just think he loses in the quarterfinal. Jose Moreno um, on the Medvedev topic asked for a Medvedev assessment so far, please. So let's see. Um, again, in the 
His first round match against Sasha Bublik, that is a great matchup for him because Bublik is so kind of impatient and a little bit, he struggles out of the corners a little bit and uh, basically Medvedev could force errors. So actually Medvedev did have offensive capability in that match because Bublik's just not a good enough defender to give, to frustrate Medvedev's offense. So that was like a, a non-contest, a very good clay matchup for Medvedev. After that, Tommy Paul, an excellent player, but Medvedev was tremendous in, in his trading. He was really, really great. And, you know, just the, the areas where Medvedev is better than Tommy Paul on all surfaces is the areas that Medvedev was better than Paul in, in this one. After dropping the first set, again, Paul played excellent, but Medvedev was a little bit impatient. As soon as Medvedev got patient, defend, trade. Uh, the depth was really, really great on a consistent basis. He wasn't missing. Paul gets nothing to attack, and Medvedev had better shot tolerance. Simple as that. Um, more patient, better shot tolerance, but also deep trading. So Paul had a lot of trouble finding his offense, and he ended up making a lot of unforced errors. Um, and then against Riley Opelka, look, Medvedev's got a great return of serve, extremely difficult to ace, uh, difficult to finish, and Opelka is, um, it, it, I don't have much, you know, I don't, I missed a lot of this match, but Opelka, I think, struggled to to finish on a consistent enough basis. He made some bad errors. Uh, it seemed pretty r routine for Daniil Medvedev, all in all. Opelka's like Bublik, though. Medvedev can, can play offense against Opelka on any surface, right? So that's a good matchup. Now, Godin's a guy who's going to defend really, really well. It should be his most difficult match. I just think he gets through it. Um, so it's that. I don't. I don't want to get. I don't want to get too in the weeds of Medvedev Gradin, to be honest with you. Uh, but my my overall assessment: he's playing. He's he's letting his skills give himself a chance to win matches. Mentally perfect, confident. Honestly, you know he, he's just. He's confident in his abilities. He has expectation for himself. So he's giving 100% effort. He's focusing. He's not panicking. And he's playing with patience instead of frustration and trying to force it. So he's playing good. He's Or well. He's playing well. English skill. Come on. All right. All right. Let's take this next one from Denise. Gil, great show. I never miss a single episode. Thank you. I would like you to discuss Nadal's service. I've noticed it's below his standards, ranging about 60% first serves in. With not a solid defense of his second serve, 66 against Paparin, 52 against Gasquet, do you feel it could become a liability against better returners that he may, might face ahead? And doesn't it give him an edge in a potential semifinal against Djokovic? Denise, I would take solace if I were you in the Rome final. Like when he needed his serve, he just stepped it up. He did. So that's what I would feel good about. His first serve win percentages have been pretty good. 81%, 84%, and 79%. So that's good. And then for the second serve win percentage, Gazke was just the only blip. Um, I have my stats, I think, a little bit differently than you. Because what did you say? Um... 66 against Popperin. Yeah, no, no, it was 56. So 56 against Popperin. Uh, 
protecting the second serve. 47 against Gazke isn't good, but then back to 55% against Cam Nori. I, I just don't think that's so bad. So that's what I'd say. I don't think it's awful. Um, here's the biggest problem with your comment. Uh, or here's how I would uh, uh, say that you shouldn't worry here. First serve percent, uh, percent of first serves in. I don't care about that stat very much. I really don't. If you are winning a high percentage of your first serve points and you're protecting your second serve, to me, you're serving well. Um, I would much rather Nadal get 60% first serves in, and so would his coaches, and he wins about 80% than if he gets 70% first serves in and he's only winning 65% of his first serve points. So you might say, well, he's making more first serves. Great. Good for him. He's not winning the point. So what does it matter? So I would say keep an eye on on win percentages, less so percent in play. Um, and that's how I think you should better evaluate the serving. So I think I think Nadal is uh, fine. But yeah, he, he, he did have difficulty serving throughout the clay court season. And his serve was, was bad by his standards. So it is something to watch. Next one from Mike. Do you think that there's an over-specialization to hard courts in the not-so-next-gen anymore? In the, in the not-so-next-anymore gen? Almost everyone is great in hard courts, but almost nobody can go deep at Roland Garros or Wimbledon. Tsitsipas may be the exception that confirms the rule. You mean breaks the rule, maybe? But, but I can't see a lot of guys winning multiple Grand Slams on another surface. Okay. Uh, the first part of this is we need to cut these guys slack for not having Wimbledon results. I'm going to keep saying this probably over and over again, and I still, I'm still I'm getting tons of questions about grass courts right now. Let's just focus on the clay. If you asked a question about grass, save it. We'll get to it before grass, before Wimbledon. Um, so I'm throwing Wimbledon out the window. I just don't think it's fair to hold these guys accountable for their 2019 Wimbledon results. It was it was two years ago now, and, and all of them are different players. Then when it comes to clay, okay, so the not-so-next-gen. Zverev, I think, is good on clay. Tsitsipas, as you said, is good on clay. Um, Shapovalov is uh, decent. I mean, he's not that—he's better on hard courts, but he's not that much—you know, he's had some good clay results. I'll, I'll put it at that. He made a Rome semi. Um who else, are, who else are we looking at? Oh, Rublev, right. Obviously, Rublev. Yeah, I mean, Rublev is like decent on clay, not great. And then Medvedev's the guy. I don't think that there are any players that are that... I don't see a pattern there, is, is all I'll say. I think if you take any generation... I think... How about this? Look at the lost gen. They're worse. Dimitrov. Um, Sanga. You know... I guess um, who else is in there? I mean, Nishikori. They were a lot worse on clay. Lost gen, I think. You know, uh, but there's always going to be players that aren't great on clay. I don't see that as a pattern when it comes to the, the next gen. I don't. From SJ, do you think your perfect player that you constructed could beat Nadal in a French Open final? I think this could be interesting because the perfect player only used one trait from each player, meaning it could only use one trait from Nadal, so Nadal may have edges in important categories. Yeah. No. No. I don't think so. 
this is kind of like the the debate of could Alabama football beat the worst team in the NFL? Like, you know, could they beat like the 0-16 Browns? And the answer is technically no. Like anyone who knows what the level of average player is when it comes to starters on the Browns versus Alabama, I think everyone kind of agrees that while it's tempting to ask that question, it wouldn't be a contest in the NFL team. The worst NFL team would smoke the best college football team. And this is kind of like that, okay? We're talking about a guy who serves like John Isner and moves like Alex DeManor. I mean, you're just, even Nadal would not beat that player on clay. The next question is, who who do I have coming out of the West? Well, in your, in your comment, you say that the Clippers are on the verge of, of losing, but I think the Clippers beat the Mavericks, and uh, I will go, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, this is a totally uninformed thing, but I'm going to go with uh, Denver. Give me Denver, okay? Let's go Denver. Okay, uh, this from Pratam. I probably butchered that. What is your take on roof and night matches at RG and Wimbledon? These facilities go well with hardcore, but it feels odd to see matches on natural-looking grass and clay surfaces not being played outdoors under the bright sun. I feel they're becoming too much business-focused. Hmm. I don't think I agree. Now, I think that I think that the night matches at this year's French Open are a total disaster. I think that it's uh, really, really hard to ask a fan to sit through, to ask a, a television audience to sit through a match without fans after going all day watching the matches with fans. With that being said, for all you guys in school, I understand it's great for you that you get to watch matches because I, you know, I was in school once too, and I know in the in the U.S. The French Open is really hard to watch because you're in school. And I know that folks all around the world will have that experience with different tournaments depending on, you know, time zones. But, um, yeah, that's been a disaster. I don't like that it starts at 9 p.m. It feels like a very long day. I don't like how we have to wait. You know, the U.S. Open with the 7 p.m. start, you go straight from day session tennis to night session tennis, often with an overlap. The fact that with the French, we're twiddling our thumbs until 9 p.m., that is totally bizarre to me, and I don't like that at all. The fact that it's one match, that means it's almost always a men's match because would you buy a ticket to see one best of three match that could finish very quickly? There's so many issues with it. Uh, but I like the lights. I think the clay looks cool under the lights. I've always enjoyed Rome for that reason, and I'm glad that Roland Garros has added the lights. I guess it's personal preference, but that's just me. I also don't like it when matches are interrupted. I just don't like that. Now, Wimbledon is a separate category. The tradition that comes with Wimbledon is probably worth leaving alone, and I understand why it just might not look quite right Center court at Wimbledon under the lights. I get that. I do. But, you know, you could have said the same thing about the roof, and we are we are all very, very glad that there is a roof. Next one from Kenny. Brad Gilbert said today on Twitter that he thinks Opelka is the American with the best odds of making a deep run here at the French. Your co-host Amy said something similar. I think, excuse me, I think Americans are weak on clay. And none of them will go deep. They should join the WTA where they might have a chance. Okay. 
the American women are much better on clay, particularly Kenan. What say you? Well, it's a, it's completely inarguable that the American women are better than the American men. First of all, at tennis, but second of all, on clay. Um, you have Sloane Stevens into the fourth round on the women's side. Kenan, Serena. Who am I missing? Anyway, you have a, you have a bunch of players, and obviously no American men. Um, do I think Opelka? Yeah, I think this year Opelka had the best chance, and you can serve on clay. I think people don't. What people underestimate on clay is the power of the kick serve. If you have a nasty kick serve, it's a huge, huge thing for clay. I mean, you look at a player like, uh, you know, a player like Dominic Team, even whose best serve is his kick serve, and how nasty that is. Uh, I think that. For Roger Federer is a big weapon for him on clay. Uh, Tommy Paul has a great kick serve. That helps him on clay. Marco Cecchinato has a kick serve. That helps him on clay. Like You can see patterns with the players who have a little bit better success on clay in the kick serve. So, so that's what makes kind of Opelka dangerous, and he can hit through any surface. Uh, but in the long run, I got to say it's probably Korda um, who is the best, who will be the best on clay. Just a really a guy with really really easy power and and natural movement and um, I would say he probably has the best chance of doing good things. Fritz really doesn't move well on the surface. Uh, TFO doesn't really have the patience to to withstand kind of the the baseline rallies on the surface. He's a little bit better when the when the points are kind of quick. So obviously Isner's um, was very dangerous in this tournament. So and so was Opelka. All right, this one from my friend at Hold the LFC, Liverpool. Yes, Liverpool Football Club, my favorite team. I'm a huge fan. Uh, go Reds. I, I love Liverpool. Um, so I just thank you for the question. Thank you for returning to the mailbag and giving myself a chance to redeem myself. Huge Liverpool guy, and let's just get to your question. I'm going to do a great job answering it because you're a fellow Liverpool fan just like me. Why aren't bad tosses penalized? There's a bit of an inconsistency as the shot clock counts point to start once you're about to toss. Uh, seen some players even abuse it by fake tossing if they're tight on the shot clock. Yes, there is a loophole, a total loophole in the serve clock, which is if you really want more time, you can just catch your toss. Brad Gilbert, I will I will mention him in back-to-back mailbag questions, has been a staunch advocate for not allowing a player to catch their toss. And I kind of like it. I don't see any problem with that. I know it's a rule in table tennis. Can't catch your toss in table tennis. Don't think you can catch your toss in badminton. You don't really toss it in badminton. You just hit it right away, don't you? But, uh, you know, the point is, why can you catch your toss? It's part of the serve. Once you start your motion, you've started your motion. There's no gray area. You know, if you if you throw a bad toss, that's your fault. I don't see anything wrong with with if they said you can't catch your toss. I see I have no issues with that. Uh, you know, it's funny. I just thought of one. I just thought of an issue. Live. What if 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 there was like photography or if there was a noise, um, there would have to be a ruling that the chair umpire could say, okay, you can catch your toss because there was a hindrance and it would be like playing let. It'd be like playing let. Okay, I'm back on the bandwagon. No, no catching your toss, not allowed. I'm all for it. Love it. 
All right, here's one from a mugs game. It's very long. I'm going to try to shorten it, even though a mugs game writes beautiful questions. Okay. Uh, why is it that the big three and Serena's level has diminished so much less than the vast majority of their peers of the same age, relatively speaking? And why have their bodies held up much better, too? We have seen quite dramatic drops in the level of so many players past the ages of 33 to 34 who were top 10 through 20 during the big three's prime, such as Verdasco, Sanga, Simone, Stan, Monfils, Cole Schreiber, uh, Hewitt, Chilich, Gazkay, Nalbandian, Ferrer. All right, now I'm going to skip ahead in the question. Serena. Okay, so I guess I'm asking you, why do you think these top players' level have not de deteriorated as badly post um, 34? And to a lesser extent, why do you think their bodies have held up better? Is it because they simply have just more motivation and drive? Is it just pure luck of better genes? Due to their wealth, do they have better access to better medical assistance, nutrition, physio, and stuff like that than the others? Or perhaps do you disagree with the premise that their games have not diminished as much as their peers and it's just sheer talent that has kept them at the top? Um, if you do agree, what would you speculate? All right. Um, maybe you can think. Okay. All right. Great question. Great question. Um, the, the one thing that you didn't mention that to me is a big deal is schedules. I think that if a guy like Nadal or Federer, really, if, if they had to play every week to maintain a ranking, to earn enough prize money, if they had to play every week, I think they'd be off the tour by now. I do. So that's, that's a big deal. The ability to manage one schedule, which is a, a privilege afforded to you at towards the top of the game. And it doesn't exist as much towards the bottom of the game, but I do think that lower-ranked players should really start to consider it more, and I think they will. I think that's coming. We're going to see this kind of make a wave. It kind of, Federer maybe was a bit of a pioneer in this space, and it's kind of, now you have Novak and, and Nadal doing it a bit, and you're going to see more players do it, in my opinion. So that's one thing. In terms of like having you know, really good physios and good recovery resources and stuff. That is important, but I do think a lot of players have that, not just them. I think that they have diminished athletically, but their abilities as champions, and the, the first of all, the mentality of a champion never goes away. That's one thing, the mental. And everyone agrees that the mental separates these players as much as the physical. And that means the mental when it comes to playing matches, but it also means the mental... Um, in terms of, you know, who who trains the best, for example. You know, the improvements that Nadal has been able to make in his game, for uh, as an example. And he has diminished physically. A lot of the players you mentioned, they're still playing. Cole Schreiber's 37, still playing, still playing. Uh, has, you know, why is he worse? Well, he's slower. He's not as athletic. Well, he does not have the ability to develop the new skills that Rafa did. Yes, it's genetic. Uh, but it is also, it, it's what Rafa, it's what made Rafa great. It's what made Rafa improve enough from the age of 10 to 18. That special it factor, the, the ability to improve yourself. That's the same thing that made him better from 30 to 34. Same thing. Same exact thing. And that's true for Djokovic and it's true for Federer. It's the same exact thing. So it's a marvel. It's incredible what they've done. A lot of it is superior talent that just doesn't go away. Um, 
take managing your schedule, taking care of your body, and and all these things kind of work work uh, out for themselves. Uh, I don't think it's really about motivation. Um, and I, I don't know how many other theories that that I feel the need to debunk that that may be floating out there. Um, adaptation, and it's different for all of them. I think Novak, Novak really, and you know I'm going to get to a question on Novak. I think that that kind of uh, refers to this. Let me let me try to find that now. Um, but it is different from for every player. Yeah. So here's one from Medezio. Uh, you often talk about Djokovic losing physicality and that being the main reason why he has trouble generating his own offense. But you also said his body is not showing signs of aging as much as Federer and Nadal. Do you think that his lack of power is the result of aging, or do you think he can do something to regain some of that strength that made him win RG a few years ago? Yeah, just thank you for this comment because you're holding me accountable for something that I say all the time, and I could see how that could be confusing. So it's nuanced. When I say Novak is not showing signs of aging, I'm talking about specific aspects of his physicality, particularly his agility and his court coverage and his explosiveness. All anything that has to do with covering the, to the the court, his defense is still so agile. We talk about the he's compared to Gumby all the time, and we we talk about just his electrifying level of defense and how he can contort his body, which also helps him on the return of serve. The ability to slide on grass. Do you know how many miles ahead Djokovic is defensively on grass? I just don't think anyone's close to him, and that just has to do with his balance and his flexibility. Well, that hasn't declined. What has is his ability to grind, play long points, and just um, the, the, the cardio and the endurance, both long-term and short-term, that is the aspect that I think has gone away with age for Novak. So it's nuanced, and that's how I'd answer your question. The power, I don't think that's aging. Power almost never goes with age. That's almost, that's almost never the case. Uh, you're never going to see... For the most part, you're not going to see these players lose power, except on their serve. Like Roddick, for example, his serve just died because his shoulder died. So sometimes you'll see that, but for the most part, power stays. It's more the legs. It's more the movement. Uh, the power might be a result of the elbow, though, the, the elbow injury. I'm not sure. Or just his body transformation, losing strength. I don't think that might not be aging, though, because some, some players gain strength with age. So that, that just might be... Diet and training program. All right, let's go to Pablo Fernandez. This might happen on Monday. Federer versus Berrettini, Nadal versus Sinner, Djokovic versus Musetti. How amazing would that be? The big three versus Italy's finest. Your comments on that, please. Yep, and it happened. It happened as of recording it. It is the big three versus Italy's finest. I'll, I'll give you a, a quick, little quick preview jobs on all three of these. How about it? Djokovic versus Musetti. Musetti, again, he's got a lot of good wins. I, I spoke about him earlier, but none of them are... He, he has not seen close to the level of Djokovic other than his match against Tsitsipas, which um, he did win a set, but the other two sets were not competitive, and I never felt like Stefanos was threatened in that match. I think that Novak is going to take advantage of, of what are still large holes in Lorenzo Musetti's game. I don't think he likes it when players rush him. They take time away. They put pressure. They make him uncomfortable. Um, when Musetti is supremely dangerous, is against opponents who who give him who give him time, and do not put him under as much pressure, and then he really does a tremendous job of hurting you. That's just not Novak Djokovic. 
I I don't know that Musetti is going to like Djokovic's level of returning. I don't think that Musetti is going to do a great job winning points against Djokovic's first serve and his first strike tennis, which has been excellent for Novak all tournament long. Um, I think Novak might do um, a really great job taking advantage of Musetti's court positioning uh, with his drop shot, his excellent backhand drop shot. I think it could be a big match for that. And with uh, some serve and volley and mixing in some net play as well. So I think Djokovic rolls, to be honest, but let's see how it goes because uh, it's still unpredictable. We don't know where Musetti's at because he hasn't faced a lot of uh, tests like Novak. Nadal versus Sinner. This is a, a really difficult matchup for Nadal. I really do believe that. I think seeds 10 through 20, Sinner is as difficult as anyone. Probably the worst person Nadal could draw in seeds 10 through 20. It's because of his backhand. It's because of it. It's because it's such a powerful and heavy weapon. I think Nadal should hope that the conditions are lively. Let's see where he's scheduled because that will will help him put Sinner on the defensive more and, and put a little bit more pressure on Sinner on the run and when it comes to his defense. What, what is so difficult for Yannick Sinner is that Nadal is going to completely neutralize his serve. And that is to be expected. With the level of Sinner's serve versus Nadal's return, it'll be completely neutralized. And to ask Yannick Sinner to win a match against Nadal at Roland Garros based off of winning neutral rallies, just that, you have no serve to help you out? Oh, that just seems impossible, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem impossible? So, I do not... Uh, I think it's going to be entertaining. I think Sinner challenges Nadal, but in a good way. And I think Nadal gets through it. 5-0 sets, but all of them close for the most part. And uh, Sinner served for the first set against Nadal last year. Uh, Federer versus Berrettini. Skill for skill, we know, you know, I think Federer's right there. I just... Uh, Physically, I, I don't think he can do it. So I favor Berrettini for that reason. Um, it, it's just all about Roger's physicality. I do think he can win the match. If Federer happens to be fresh and if his legs are, are feeling good, I, I do think I, I favor him. I think he's playing great. I think Berrettini is, is also playing great. But overall, in the grand scheme of things, taking into account what Roger Federer has from a fitness standpoint, I favor Berrettini. Comes down to that. Okay, we only have a couple more. This one from Andrew. In another video, you noted the change in conditions at RG since last year, uh, unique circumstances. Do you feel that this is helping or hurting any players in particular? Side note, enjoying the content and the short videos throughout the week. Thank you, my guy. Thank you. Um, First of all, the scheduling plays a big factor. Is it raining on the clay? That plays a big factor. Is it night? Is it day? What's the temperature? Uh, the conditions seem to be changing a lot with the weather. But that aside, let's just say it's playing like it did in the early stages of the first week, which is faster and livelier. The, the conditions that allowed Isner and Opelka to go deep, for example. I actually don't really think that helps or hurt any player in particular. Let's first talk about the Nadal-Djokovic matchup. Okay, Djokovic likes it when the ball bounces lower and the court plays faster. 
Novak likes that. Um, but that will not be the conditions ever because it's either going to bounce lower and slower, which is not what Novak wants. He wants faster. Or it's going to bounce um, higher, which is not what Novak wants, and faster, which is what Novak wants. You see? So it's never going to... The conditions on clay at Roland Garros, it is never going to be double check mark for Djokovic over Nadal. It is always going to be that Nadal likes the conditions and that there's something about the conditions, whether it be the speed of the court like last year or the high bounce, which is generally the case, that Nadal is going to thrive in. So not really. And then when it comes to Tsitsipas Zverev, off the top of my head, not really. I don't think that the the change conditions are going to swing the pendulum much. Let's just, if we're assuming that that is the semifinals, for example, just to jump ahead. All righty. This is the last one. I'm glad uh, someone asked about this. This is from J. The letter J. Fakina played extraordinarily well against Root. Really impressed with his ground game and attitude. He needed multiple match points to close it out, but he pushed through it and won in five. As a tennis fan, you got to recognize special moments like this because it's important for their careers. What ranking do you think Fakina is going to obtain? And who of the established pros would you compare his game style with? So glad you brought up this match. This was such a delight to watch. My God, fifth set was probably the best set that I've seen on the men's side in the tournament. Such a good, great stuff. The tension was through the roof. Um, his pace really bothered Root. Fakina can flat out crush the ball. He can freaking kill it off of the forehand. And Rude just doesn't handle pace that well. That's why he's that's why he's great on clay. But Fakina was actually hitting right through it. Um, so that's kind of a, a tactical note. Rude also uh, needs to stop. He needs to defend his backhand better. Rude does. But overall, how was this match won? Up here for Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. It was won in the head. I'm pointing to my head like Stan Wawrinka, if you're listening on podcast. Um, that's where it was won. Kaspar Rude won 15 more points than the young Spaniard. 15 more points. But any time there was some pressure, big moment, crowd got into it, bright lights, do or die. Rude got nervous, which is normal. Fakina, superhuman, superhuman. He played those moments. He played the under the end of that fifth set like he lives for it, like he lives for that moment. He plays... Like he would play better in a full stadium, packed house, on national Spanish television, on the front page of the newspaper, with all the attention, all the pressure. He played, he plays like that's ideal conditions for him. Because he's got this swagger, this bravado, um, again, an attitude, this very, very... Um, showman-like attitude reminds me of like someone who is going into acting, like who's going to be the lead actor in on Broadway. It's just, yo, I'm going to put on a show. I am going to play with confidence. I'm going to go after it. And 
every point I win, I'm just going to to be a beacon of positivity as well. I'm going to fight like a like a monster. So yeah, I just really appreciated uh, Fakina's attitude, which you you used that word in your comment. And uh, here's here's what I'll say: You're asking me to compare his game style with another pro, and it's hard for me to really do that. I'm not perfectly sure, but I will say this: He has the chance if he can build his game to the proper level and he can put himself in big matches he has the chance to do what a Stan Wawrinka has done the chance to do what like a Juan Martin Del Potro has done and what Novak Djokovic started to do especially in the last decade and that is no moments too big the pressure is good um and again he did blow some match points but he went after it he was going after it uh, with with reckless abandon and a, and a, a again a brilliant confidence about him, and uh, I just really like what he has in the mental department. I really really do. He just needs to be more consistent. He is he's too erratic. Um, there's shot selection issues, big time shot selection issues, which is good because that's so easy. It's not easy to fix, but very very fixable. He's a great athlete, very talented. Um, and I, I really am a big fan. I hope that he is a top 10 player in his career, and I think that he has a good chance to do it. All right, that is all I got. This has been The Mailbag. Uh, make sure you're following me on Twitter at Gil underscore gross, and I will continue my Roland Garros coverage throughout week two. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.